You're listening to sermon audio from River City Church in Fargo, North Dakota. River City Church exists to make disciples of Jesus who make disciples of Jesus through the gospel of Jesus. You can find out more about River City by visiting our website at www.rivercityfargo.org. you be our glory? Would you fix our eyes on Jesus? That as we come to your word now, that our hearts would continue to be filled with gratitude and with worship. That we wouldn't separate out what we're singing now from what we're soon to read, but that you would help us to to see and to savor and to understand and, and Holy Spirit that you'd teach us from your word, that we might glory in the mercy of Jesus for us, dying in our place, being crushed for us, and this would stir in our hearts uh, worship and gratitude and repentance and belief. Help us as we come to your word now, we pray in Jesus' name, amen and amen. Uh, You can have a seat. Good morning. We are uh, continuing our study in Luke's Gospel. Today we're reading uh, from Luke chapter 13. If you need a Bible, uh, some folks are coming around that can get you one, so you can read along with us. Uh, If you need a Bible, Luke chapter 13. Now, as you're finding your way there, a little reminder or refresher, our mission as a church is to make disciples of Jesus who make disciples of Jesus. And this mission statement isn't unique to us. We didn't make it up. We, we took it from Jesus' own words in Matthew chapter 28, where Jesus is commissioning his disciples, those that are his followers, as they spread out into the world, that they would make disciples among all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, which is what we believe should happen. Believers in Jesus should be baptized. And Jesus continues and says, teaching them to observe or obey all that I've commanded you. And these gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, give us the things that Jesus said and taught that God wants for us to have. And familiarizing ourselves with, studying them, uh, striving by the power of the Holy Spirit, who is our teacher and our counselor, to understand even the hard things that Jesus says is part of what it means to be a disciple who then makes disciples. We don't get to pick and choose what parts of God's Word or or what parts of things Jesus has said that we like or pick and choose the parts of Jesus Himself that we like, we get all of it. This is what He's revealed to us about Himself. And so, Luke chapter 13, Jesus is continuing with His ministry of teaching and healing the sick and someone interrupts Him with a question about a tragic situation. In essence, asking, how are we to understand when tragedy happens? happens. It's kind of the crux of this passage, and so I pray that that's fruitful for us today as well. So let's read our text with that kind of picture in mind, and then we'll unpack it. Luke chapter 13, verses 1 through 9. Hear the word of the Lord this morning. There were some present at the very time who told him, told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And Jesus answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, 
but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And Jesus told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, Look, for three years now I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, Sir, let it alone this year also, until I dig around it and put on manure. Then, if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. This is the word of the Lord for us this morning. Now, this is continuing what's been happening so far in Luke 11 and Luke 12. There's crowds of people, Luke tells us. Thousands of people are interested in what Jesus is saying and doing. And it's a mix, right? His disciples are with him, those who are close to him. But there's also intermixed in this large crowd religious leaders, uh, Pharisees and scribes, and then just general onlookers who are just curious about this Jesus guy. And Jesus is interrupted by someone who wanted to make sure that Jesus was aware of a very tragic uh, situation that had happened, and maybe by extension, wanted to know how Jesus felt about it. I mean, Jesus was growing in popularity, and surely he would have an opinion about what had happened. I mean, they're just regular people here in this crowd, right? Like you and me. And when we see something or read about something tragic, we tend to ask the same questions, right? When we see something tragic or hard happen, we too ask, why? And in fact, we actually seek out voices that we think are valuable to us or we respect or we think should have an opinion about that thing. And we seek out and ask them, what do you think about the thing that is concerning to us. We do the exact same thing here. Why did this happen? Why did it happen to them? What could have been done to prevent it? Right? These are legitimate, normal questions that we all ask when we look at tragedy. And so the people in this crowd are looking at Jesus and they're asking him to give an answer essentially to the question, why did this happen? But Jesus, being Jesus, does not answer the question in the way that they expect. The question that Jesus is answering is different than the question that they're asking. They're asking the question, and as we look at the the text, we tend to ask this question, how do we understand tragedy? What do we do with it? And I think what we hear from Jesus in here is this, that every tragedy is an opportunity to repent. That's the answer he gives. Because God's mercy is extended to us in Jesus. Now, these two sections go together, verses 1 through 5 and verses 6 through 9. And I believe they're connected, and Jesus is teaching them together, kind of using the last half in the parable he tells, which we'll get to in a second, to unpack and explain his answer that he gives in the first half. And the shared theme is repentance. And, And so for us today, a simple definition of the word repentance is this, to change one's mind, to turn, right? In this case, a turning from trusting in self and our own perspective to trusting in God. Okay? So that's where we're going to go with for a, a simple definition of repentance this morning, just to change one's mind, to turn. Okay? And so our two points today follow the two sections. One, tragedy is an opportunity for repentance. 
tragedy is an opportunity to turn. And two, that time is an opportunity for mercy. We'll get into that here in a second. So let's look at the first section, verses 1 through 5. I'm making the case that tragedy is an opportunity for repentance. Let's get into this story. There are some present, Luke says, in this crowd who tell Jesus that there are some Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. Now what's going on here? There's a lot happening and and we know a little. We know some from the biblical uh, account. We know some from the historical account of what life was like at the time in Jerusalem under Roman rule. Apparently, there were some Galileans who were in the temple in Jerusalem when the animal sacrifices were being carried out. Likely around the time of Passover, that's likely, when the temple would have been filled with animals being slaughtered for sacrifice. I won't get too detailed because there are young children in the room, but it would have been, there would have been a lot of blood. Let me just put it that way. A lot. Okay? Everyone is bringing their sacrifice for their sins and for their families. Everyone's bringing their own, right? Okay, you can just imagine what the, the sight and smell and look and what that all would have looked like. And Pilate was the Roman governor over this region, including Jerusalem. Rome had taken rule and had given, set up you know, individual governors and, 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 and different small little you know, options for, for leadership or for local government. And so Pilate would have been the governor over this area. We also know from history that there were many zealous Jews from almost the beginning of the time of Roman rule who rebelled against Rome and rebelled against their occupation, as they saw it, of Jerusalem. And so there were skirmishes and fights with Roman military, all sorts of things, works of sabotage. So, so likely what's happening here is that Pilate, wanting to kind of snuff out an uprising, sent Roman soldiers after Galileans, some rebels, who were making trouble, according to Rome. And likely that these Galileans, these rebels, hid away or snuck away, being chased possibly even, into the temple thinking, well, surely they won't follow us in here, right? I'm going into a church for sanctuary. They're not going to chase us in here. But apparently they did, or something like it. And the Roman soldiers put to death by the sword Galileans, and their blood, as it spilled out of them, sorry for being graphic, mixed, mingled with the sacrificial work that was happening there, the blood of animals. That's what's kind of happening here. And this would have been terribly offensive, remarkably offensive. Not only were the men themselves who were killed defiled by having their own blood spilled and mixed with that of animals, which is a very unclean thing according to the law, but also it would have defiled the entire sacrifice. The blood of humans was not meant to be spread and mixed in with the blood of these animals which were offered for, for uh, forgiveness. And so the, the temple would have to have been ritually cleaned all over again, and all the, the work that they were doing, all the practice that they were practicing at the time, would have essentially been done away with in that little window of time until they could have purified everything. I mean, this would have been a, this would have been a, a disaster for them. It was immensely tragic. They would have seen it as so incredibly evil. How could Pilate do such a thing? And the people want to let Jesus know, if he doesn't already know, 
of this terrible tragedy that's been done to them. Look at what's been done to us as a people, Jesus. Jesus' answer in verse 2 is fascinating. Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this terrible way? This is another one of those examples of Jesus knowing what they were thinking, right? He answers them, not the question they're asking out front, but the question that's kind of underneath in their hearts. Because the prevailing theology of the day here in Luke chapter 13 is that bad things happen to bad people. And so when tragedy strikes, the assumption was, man, they must have done something really bad for something this bad to happen to them. Right? We experience this only a little bit in our own lives, but like where someone near in proximity to us is maybe doing something questionable, and our internal monologue goes, I'm just going to stand over here, right? Just in case God decides lightning's appropriate, I want to have a little distance, right? Just in case. And the assumed theology of the day is kind of just that. In John chapter 9, we read um, an interaction. John records an interaction where Jesus is traveling with his disciples, and they come across a man born blind. And one of his disciples says, Jesus, teacher, is this man who is blind, is he blind for, is it because of his sin or the sin of his parents? Do you see the prevailing theology that's leaking out? What's being assumed in that question? Well, bad stuff happens to bad people. And in John 9, in John 9 Jesus' response is pretty great. He says, the man born blind, he's not blind for either his sin nor his parents' sin, but so that the power of God might be displayed in his life. And then Jesus heals the man which is pretty great. And much like the concerned individuals here in Luke 13, Jesus presses on them with a question. Do you think that they're worse because this bad thing happens to them? And when he presses on them, their theology leaks out. That's what Jesus is pressing on, that somehow you must think that these people are worse because of this bad thing that happened. Skip down to verse 4. Jesus continues to answer an unasked question, or those 18 on whom the Tower of Siloam fell and killed them. Jesus offers his own example. Now, we don't really know anything about this tower other than these words from Jesus, but apparently a tower of some kind fell and killed 18 people. That's what we know. And this would be tragic. And the people in the crowd probably would have known about it. And Jesus says the exact same thing about the people who are crushed by the tower as the people who were killed by the sword. Do you think that those who died were worse offenders than everybody else who lived in Jerusalem? Like somehow they deserved it more? In both scenarios, Jesus responds the exact same way. Two, Two responses essentially to take away. One, don't think that just because something bad happened to them, it's because they were somehow worse than everyone else. And the second thing Jesus says is this, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Jesus turns the question from, why did this happen to them, to, there's something I need you to consider when these things happen. You might not die in the same way by the sword or by a tower crushing your head, but you will all die. And this is where I think we can listen to the words of what Jesus is saying to this crowd of people and make sure we're hearing what he's saying to us. Because when we often see tragedy, we ask, why did this happen to them? 
when instead Jesus is telling us the question we should be asking is, why didn't this happen to me? Jesus turns it around and he says, you're asking the wrong question sometimes in tragedy. Instead of asking, why is this happening to them? Ask yourselves, why is this not happening to me? Tragedy is an opportunity for repentance. Jesus is saying, you're so preoccupied with trying to find out the why. Why did this happen? That you're missing the, the more important question, what am I supposed to learn from this? And I think that's at least part of what Jesus is saying. That when we look around and see evil, whether it's humans sinning against one another, as in the case of Pilate killing the Galileans, or, or foreign armies invite, uh, excuse me, invading neighboring nations unwillingly, uh, uh, and, and unlawfully killing civilians, or, 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 if, uh, or if it's tragedy and evil that happens outside of human action, right? Like towers falling over, or tornadoes sweeping across miles and miles of the country. No matter the source of tragedy, that we look not at those who suffer and try to primarily understand why this thing is happening to them. And like Jesus is exposing in the hearts of the people here, wondering what, for what sin must, must, must be happening, on for, happening in their lives for God to be punishing them like this. Instead, Jesus is saying, when we look and we see evil, when we realize that it's, it's actually us, we're the ones deserving of death. We're the ones who deserve death, death by the sword or to be flattened by a tower. And when that happens, then we rightly assess ourselves. We can say, oh God, have mercy on me. I deserve death, and yet even now I'm alive. Every tragedy that we see is a reminder of what we deserve, death. And it's actually God's grace to remind us that although we do deserve death, as long as we are breathing, we are being given an opportunity to repent. Now, as an aside, this is not an excuse to not show mercy and compassion to those experiencing tragedy. I don't know if any of you, you're all nice people, none of you are going to take that opportunity to, to, be lack, to lack mercy, but I'm just going to put it out here anyway. We absolutely should be moved to compassion for others in the midst of tragedy. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 15 that as followers of Jesus, we rejoice with those who are rejoicing and we weep with those who are weeping. And our weeping with others in tragedy, we are entering into and joining with them in their pain with compassion, realizing the reality that if we are living and breathing, it is only by the mercy of God. Which leads to the second part of our text, verses 6 through 9. That time is an opportunity for mercy. On the heels of this interaction uh, with these concerned individuals, Jesus tells a parable. He tells a story to teach a lesson. Verse 6. And Jesus told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. Now, Figs are not trees that we're familiar with around here very much. But, but as, it, as it relates to figs, the figs on a tree, when they're actually growing, aren't as easily seen as other fruits, right? You can drive down the, the road, and in fact, there's an apple tree. There's a couple of apple trees at the end of our street that will uh, kind of bloom in the fall. And you can see from the 
street that there's apples on the tree, just from a distance, these big clusters of apples. And we're like, great, random apples in the, in the park, everyone in the neighborhood goes and pulls apples from that tree. I don't know who it belongs to, but free apples. But you can see that there's apples on the tree. With figs, it's not quite that case. You have to actually get up to the fig tree and peel back the, the foliage because the fruit likes to hide behind the leaves. And so the owner of this tree has a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he's expecting fruit. It's reasonable. Why do you plant stuff? Why do you plant a garden? Because you want things to grow. So it's reasonable that this guy who owns the vineyard is like, I planted this fig tree. I would expect it to grow figs. Verse 7, he comes to the vine dresser, the one who's responsible to tend to the vines and the trees and kind of care for the garden. And he says, look, for three years now, I've come seeking fruit from this tree and I find none. And he's fed up. Cut it down, he says. Why should it use up the ground? For three years, I've been expecting fruit and so far, nothing. So, so rather than it taking up nutrients and not producing fruit, um, or even worse, it might be stealing nutrients from the other trees and plants in the garden. I'm done with it. Get rid of it. If a tree isn't bearing fruit, its next best use is firewood. Right? Verse 8, And he, the vine dresser, answered him, the man who owned the tree, and he said, Sir, let it alone this year also, until I dig around it and put on manure. Essentially, let me tend to this little tree a little bit more. Let me see if there's more I can do to encourage it to produce fruit. Now, let me dig around, give its roots some, some space, maybe add some fertilizer. I'll do better about checking for bugs. I'll make sure it's watered and fed and cared for as best I can to help it bear fruit. Verse 9, then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not then, then you can cut it down. So the meaning of this parable in context with the passage we read now becomes a little bit more clear. And if we bring in the context of what Jesus says in John 15, I think it helps even more. In John chapter 15, you don't have to turn there, but Jesus says this, I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Here we find the vine dresser, right? Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. The vine dresser's job is to tend to the trees and the vines that they would bear fruit. So Jesus is saying, my father is the vine dresser and he is withholding judgment because he desires that his trees and his vineyard bear fruit. He desires people to pull the analogy, bear fruit. What kind of fruit? In Matthew chapter 3, Jesus, talking with Pharisees who are presuming about, upon God's kindness, like, it's okay, he doesn't care that, of what we do and think, and we're, we're good. Jesus says to them, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. This is, I think, what Jesus is saying here, that God is patient. That God is showing mercy. At least most of the time, He doesn't just cut the tree down right away. He doesn't strike us down with lightning on the spot, even though we might deserve it. He is patient and He withholds cutting us down. Why? Because He desires that people everywhere might turn from their sin in repentance and faith. God is 
patient. And that's, I think, what Jesus is highlighting here. Both the need to repent, to turn from our sin, to to trust in the Lord, and to remember that God is merciful. And He is patient. And at the very same time, at some point, there's an end. We read it last week in Luke chapter 12. Sooner or later, we'll stand before the judge, and unless there's a settlement made, we'll have to pay every last penny of the debt we owe, and none of us can pay it all. That's what we read last week. Sooner or later, the vine dresser comes with a blade, maybe to prune so that we bear more fruit, or maybe to cut down. To quote the great theologian Johnny Cash, you can run on for a long time, run on for a long time, run on for a long time, sooner or later, God will cut you down. It's a good song, by the way. There's another one he writes, When the Man Comes Around, which whew, gives you the chills. <laughs> Says similar thing, right? At some point, not that God's patient has run out because he's perfectly merciful and patient, but at a time determined by his sovereign will, has said, I'm giving you this long and I'm extending to you my mercy so that you'll see it and respond. And at this point, we settle accounts. So while we're still standing and still breathing, what are we learning about God's patience? And what are we seeing about His, what is we seeing about His invitation to us? What invitation is being extended to us? Now in the time of Jesus, the crowd would have heard about the tragedy with Pilate and the Galileans. They would have heard about the tower probably falling in Jerusalem. Not that they had a daily newspaper, but if they did, it would have made the headline, Tower Falls in Siloam 18 Killed. Right? Today, you and I get notifications of all kinds of things happening from all over the globe. Right? If there was a hurricane or a tsunami in what we now call the Pacific Ocean, these people in first century Jerusalem, they might not ever hear that bit of information ever. But you and I will get a notification when we leave here in a few minutes and we check Google News of like all the things that have happened in the last 35 minutes or 40 minutes, right? You and I can get real-time updates of what's happening right now halfway around the globe uh, between Russia and the Ukraine, like real-time updates of military maneuvers. We don't have to wait hours or days for a report to get printed in a newspaper or even travel by word of mouth. In this way, you and I have access to tragedy after tragedy that we would otherwise have no idea about. We've read stories of coal miners trapped around the globe. Civil war in the Central African Republic. Or of genocide. Or of tsunamis. Right? Earthquakes in the ocean that caused giant tidal waves. So if we apply these words of Jesus to us, we put ourselves in the crowd for a second. We have hundreds of reminders every day. Whether it's the evil we see where man does evil against man, or it's things we call natural disasters where tragedy strikes. We don't just have a couple of opportunities or a couple of stories. We have hundreds and hundreds of reminders to repent that populate our computers in our pockets, right? Jesus is saying every tragedy is a gracious call to us to repentance and faith. 
Martin Luther, in his, the first of his 95 theses that he nailed to the chapel door in Wittenberg, sparked the Protestant Reformation, he, he said this, When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, Repent, He willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. Repentance, in our definition, how we're applying it here, isn't merely a one-time event where we repent of our sins and we're good to go. Repentance is the fruit we bear as Christians for as long as we live. We repent and believe by faith. And our lives now bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Now, don't mistake what I'm saying. Jesus' payment for our sins was paid once and for all. For all of our sins. Romans chapter 6, Hebrews chapter 7, Hebrews chapter 9. We aren't making Jesus pay again for our sins when we talk about repentance. Rather, our lives now as Christians, as those who have been forgiven, whose debts have been paid by Jesus, continue to bear the fruit of repentance. If we have genuine faith in Jesus, to use Jesus' uh, parable analogy here, we've been dug up around us a little bit by the vine dresser. The Holy Spirit is cultivating in us spiritual life so that this tree that God has planted now bears fruit in keeping with repentance where it otherwise was barren. And how do we know what the fruit of repentance look like? looks like? Paul gives us a a little sliver of that in Galatians chapter 5, where he talks about the fruit of the Spirit, fruit that is born by the work of the Holy Spirit in us, things like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, things we do not produce on our own, but that are produced in us as the Spirit is cultivating us. Right? These are the fruits that grow on the tree that is bearing fruit in keeping with repentance. Not self-righteousness, not standing in judgment of the sins of others while ignoring our own, not presuming upon God's kindness. Instead, we look at tragedy as an opportunity to repent, to go, God, for whatever reason, in your divine mercy, I'm breathing. So what are you doing in me? God is showing us mercy, right? We deserve the sword and the tower, but instead of crushing us, Jesus is offered. Jesus takes the sword. Jesus is crushed on our behalf, and so we have the opportunity to repent and believe. God has shown us mercy in Jesus. Two takeaways. If you're a Christian, then you and I can see every tragedy as this kind of reminder, that Jesus was slain in our place. Jesus was crushed in my place. And thus we remember and respond with gratitude, a heart of repentance and worship. That our response in tragedy is to say, Oh God, thank you for showing mercy to me, a sinner, and making me new. Would you keep cultivating in me so that I might continue to bear fruit in keeping with repentance, that I might continue to bear the fruit of the Spirit that you've begun? That's how we can approach this as followers of Jesus. And if you're not a Christian, or maybe say it this way, if you're not yet a follower of Jesus, this passage today and every tragedy you see is a reminder that none of us is deserving of God's mercy. Not one of us. That each of us deserve death. And the fact that you are breathing right now is an invitation from God for you to believe. 
to repent of your sin and the false belief in your own goodness and trust that Jesus is the one who dies in your place. This is what I think Luke 13 is a reminder for us today that we can take with us, that every tragedy is an opportunity for repentance, a deepening of our faith, and a reminder of the depths of God's mercy to us. That even though we deserve it, Jesus suffers in our place and exchanges instead his eternal life. Would you pray with me? God, I'm grateful that you are patient, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. That the promise, the curse, and the blessing that came even from Jeremiah to the people of Judah, that we can follow that thread of curse and blessing, that the one who trusts in himself is barren and lives in an uninhabited salt land, but the one who trusts in you is like a tree planted by streams of water. So even in times of drought, which will come, there is not fear because you are the one who cultivates. You are the one that makes fruitful. And we pray you do that in us. That you'd tend to and prune your vineyard so that we might bear fruit. Not for the glory of the tree, but for the glory of you, the one who has planted, the one who tends. So would you cause our hearts as we come to the communion table to be filled with fresh awe and worship, that we would see in the bread and the cup the the fresh reminder that you, Jesus, were crushed for us, that you were pierced for us, And all of this would overwhelm us with a sense of gratitude and worship. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.